Private debt markets have seen rapid growth over the last decade, growing from what was a small allocation for many institutional investors just 10 years ago to a much more significant and often core position in portfolios today. Can the growth of this asset class continue? Or might economic and structural headwinds mean that trouble is on the horizon? I know there are investors and allocators who think, wow, there's so many different managers out there. This has got to be a bubble and, and so forth. And I think if you, you go then look under the underlying portfolios, you look at the, the covenants that the, these have, there's good structures, there's the ability to repay the loan. If you think about all of that, because those managers are incented to make sure they get the money back because that's how they make money, I think it's a very different world than, than the bank. So I think the asset class has a lot more room to grow. I mean, our, our view is we think, you know, this is a three to five trillion dollar asset class in the next five to ten years. That was David Scopoliti, partner and global head of private debt at Mercer. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on today's show, my colleague and Bearings head of private assets, David Mahalik, sits down with Mercer's David Scopoliti for a wide-ranging conversation on the past, present, and future of private debt. This episode is the first installment of our new Investing Together series, where we'll be hosting thought-provoking conversations with external partners just like David on topics ranging from private credit to real estate to insurance investing and more. With that, please enjoy this conversation with David Scopoliti and David Mahalik. David, thank you very much for joining me today on this episode of Streaming Income. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. All right, as we get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your role at Mercer and then, and then also uh, your career journey, sort of what led you to, to being here today. Sure. I'm global head of private credit at Mercer. And, uh, you know, first, I've got to say I've got an absolutely fantastic team globally. Uh, this is the best team I've worked with in my entire career, and I've been doing this for for 30 years, as you'll hear about my career journey in a, in a second. In terms of what we're doing at Mercer, and my role is uh, in really overseeing our U.S. business, our European business, and our uh, Australian business. We manage about 25 different vehicles globally for uh, our investors and our clients with all different types of risk return profiles and so forth in private credit. In addition to doing that, we also have a number of advisory clients where we're trying to help them think about building portfolios in, in private credit. Uh, it's an asset class that is you know, maybe 12 or 13 years old, so it's still developing, still evolving, still growing. And there are a lot of questions. And we're still seeing more and more new investors come into the asset class. So uh, they come to us as the global team. Uh, our mission is to be uh, the best performing and most respected uh, private credit team globally uh, in terms of what we do. So having that mission statement, you know, we talk about it literally at the start of every one of our, our team meetings. Uh, but that's my role is really to to coordinate all those uh, team members and vehicles and clients to make sure they're, they're happy and they're getting what they want. Okay. And now a little bit about your career journey. Where have you been over the course of how many decades? Yeah. So uh, it, it's amazing. I'm in my mid-50s. So, uh, you know, I've been doing this uh, uh, more than a minute. Uh, I started off actually doing direct lending, so lending money to companies. 
Um, finding, by the way, that sometimes it is not easy to get the money back, uh, FYI. Um, I've, uh, I've had to be, go through bankruptcies and out-of-court structurings and some other fun, fun things over the course, I'm sure, like you. you know, Those are, are um, interesting um, uh, times and really learning times. But I've been on the GP side of the, the business. I've been on the LP side of, of, of the business. And I've done both private equity and private credit. So really being in the private markets and understanding how all the pieces go, um, you know, I've sort of made my way and it's been a fantastic journey. And I tell young people, you know, they always were looking for a plan. And I say, you know, sometimes it comes to you, just do what you, you know, if, if this is what you enjoy doing, do it, do it really well. And opportunities will will make themselves available. Uh, it's it's hard, I think, in this business, and, and you've been around uh, like me, it's hard to I- exactly uh, sketch out a, a trail. Uh, sometimes just things happen um, for the for the right reasons. Right. The good advice is usually surround yourself with good people uh, and then let your career evolve and, and, and go where it feels right. And, and frankly, have a mentor. And I've, had, I've been lucky enough to have a few really good mentors, um, some who've been in this business and frankly, some who've been CEOs um, and have come from different businesses outside of what we do in, in the investment management business. So yeah. uh, they're the ones who sometimes have given me almost the, the better advice because they've been running businesses and companies and Siri and Alexa don't do what we do yet yeah. uh, or ChatGBT. So yeah. um, I think they'll need us around for a few more years. Yeah. In terms of private debt, private credit, um, it's you know an asset class that's been around a long time, but I feel like in the last you know five years, it feels like there's been an explosion. So, can you talk a little bit about you know when you first sort of got into private markets and how you've seen the asset class change over time? Yeah, you know if, if you go back, you know again I've been doing this thirty years to the early '90s where banks and money U.S. money center banks, European money center banks. Uh, the Japanese banks, certainly, uh, and even some of the Nordic banks were very, very active. The uh, Canadian banks, very active in the what was the LBO business, um, whether it was in high-yield bonds or just doing leveraged lending, right? So that has really, if you think about in the 90s, um, we had a recession. We had this thing called uh, highly levered loans that the Fed and the comptroller of the currency started looking at pretty intensely. Um, and over the last 30 years, I mean, you have seen more and more groups now called direct lenders or private credit managers develop over time to really um, take up the, the demand that the banks have not met uh, as the supply of capital from banks have uh, has reduced really over a very long period of time. The GFC was an accelerator of that, uh, banks pulling out of the market. And really in today's market, it, you see what's going on with inflation. The Fed's already putting more pressure on banks to with higher capital reserves and asking them really to cut back on lending as a way to deal with inflation. So, you know, you you've had banks that you know who started this business and were in this business for a very long time. And today you obviously have private credit managers who, frankly, I think are more capable at sourcing assets, also underwriting those assets and managing them to fruition. Um, and that's been a that if you will womb to tune that full cycle um, is very different than you typically see in a bank. Because um, with the bank, uh, particularly if if you hit a speed bump, they just sell the assets at you know a fraction of the cents on the dollar out of some workout group. So the business definitely um, has changed. I think it's changed for the better, actually, um, because most private credit managers like yourselves who manage a lot of capital, uh, your business is dependent on making good decisions hiring great people, finding good deals, and so forth. 
the banks really didn't have those incentives. So um, I actually think it's a healthy environment to have uh, asset managers who have the right incentives to make sure that they're underwriting the right loans. Because anybody can make a loan. It's hard to get the money back, as, as you know. So given that, you know, and for an asset allocator, you know, what are some of the mistakes you think people make when they're, when they're evaluating managers? And there's, and there's a wide, right? you have some of the household names that have been in the asset class for decades in the last five years. Again, as we've talked about with the growth of the asset class, you've had a lot of new managers, whether they're a startup or, or a derivative sure. of a, you know, some other business they have. And everyone wants to start a direct lending shop, and, and many have. Um, which there, I think there are pluses and minuses to you know big established platforms versus newer platforms. So, what kind of things do you think allocators should be focused on when they're deciding who to partner with? Well, you know, the the first step is always this whole asset allocation process, uh, which is you know, how much risk do you want to take, how much return do you need, and that's the first piece of the pie that you need to really think through before you go into the manager selection mode. As you think about manager selection, I mean, there are, I, I use the framework of the five P's. What's the product? Who are the people? How are they performed? Do they have a replicable process? And what's the price, terms and conditions that we, we need to pay? So I think if, if you as an allocator, asset owner of any type have made a decision about your asset allocation, your risk return, then it sort of informs you know, where you go and, and, and which managers you go after. I, I do see uh, allocators uh, who I think Two things. One is they look for very idiosyncratic strategies or things that are maybe not correlated. Musical royalties is a great example. I mean, that is, you know, it has a capital need and there's a marketplace for that, but it's it's a pretty limited marketplace. There's a few people who play in that pool. And just to go into that because you, you, you feel it's not correlated as opposed to going into that and a direct lending platform, I, I do see allocators who tend to go over-specialize um, in, quote, uncorrelated types of lending strategies. And I, and I do think over time they'll find that, that that experience is not exactly what they thought. Um, everything's interconnected, by the way. Yeah. As, as much as the actuaries want to say that certain things are uncorrelated to others, I think in today's world, um, where we have you know streaming video of things happening over the skies in real time, the, the the information flow today is very different than it was ten or even fifteen years ago. Yeah, I think that's a good segue then to my next question, which is, as you, people come into the asset class, right? You need to think about how you diversify in the asset class. You can do that by selecting different managers within a within the same asset class. You can have different. Uh, areas of the private markets that you put in a portfolio. So how do you think people should should think about that and the best way to sort of manage some of those correlation risks? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you think about, you can think about it vertically, which is you could have a stack of different managers, uh, you know, by region, by geography. That's usually the first cut. And then within that, you can start thinking about, you know, direct lending or structured credit, specialty finance, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, certainly there's nothing wrong with if you have the resources to go through that vertical stack. I think that's great. Uh, I, do, I do think if you don't have the resources, and and frankly, even from a return standpoint, going with a more uh, uh, horizontal uh, manager that is able to actually, and has capabilities throughout the, the credit markets, right? It could be direct lending, structured credit, real estate, what have you, and going to them to ask them, you know, much like we've, we've done with our partnership with you, is tell us, you know, what you have a big platform, across credit 
And we'd like to try to get the best ideas out of that because the market definitely moves o- over time. And we've seen the, the changes uh, over the last three years in the market, you know, tightening spreads, widening spreads, you know, it, it, things are moving around all the time. So being able to access the, the best deal flow off a platform on a horizontal basis for us, that's one of the where you know the places that we go and what we look for. Not to say that we won't fill in with specialists um, in certain areas because you know you really can't can't go horizontal. So we'll do a little bit vertical. But I think our our preference is more horizontal than vertical at this point. Yeah. So you mentioned things can move around a lot, um, which leads me to a question around valuations in in private markets. I think that's something particularly for people that may be newer to making an allocation is how the valuation process works, how how they should think about it during periods of volatility. As an anecdote, I remember being at a conference years ago and someone talking about their experience through the financial crisis, and they were talking about a particular private credit manager, and they said, through, through that period, everything was off 20 or 30%, you know, and this manager was never down more than three. And I, you know, which maybe that's true, right? But it also leads to the question of, well, what, you know, it's, you know, it it is, you know, what is, what are the underlying assets worth? So how how do you think people, when they come into the asset class, what should they be aware of when they think about valuation and how different managers treat it? Yeah, certainly. I think there's been an evolution in in valuation for that very reason, right? Because there are, because it is not traded, right? There's no uh, willing buyer and willing seller for a, a loan off a Bloomberg screen, uh, which we see, you know, a lot obviously in the high yield market and the broadly syndicated loan market. You know, those markets are real trading markets. Um, you know, somebody is is you know buying at ninety eight and a half and maybe selling at ninety nine. Um, there's a lot of movement going on, and you know, valuations can. Um, if you think about access to information as a loan investor in a broadly syndicated loan or high yield market, you don't have the same visibility, transparency into the financial data, one, and two, you don't have access to management or the if it's a private equity owned business, the sponsor or the shareholders. In the private market, you have a ton more information. Um, you have full access to the, the management team and whoever the shareholder is, particularly if it is, a, is, is on the private equity side. So you can make a better, more fundamentally driven valuation decision than you can in the public markets, which are basically Bloomberg's going back and forth. So I think, you know, as as investors look at this and understanding the various valuation methodologies, they're out there. Um, Having the manager do a third party um, valuation, certainly quarterly and annually, and then having the auditors then um, look at that at the end of the year. I think that should give you know uh, investors comfort that um, you're not going to see the same level of volatility in private debt, only because it's, it's a more fundamentally valued um, asset. There's enough firms out there now. There's enough, uh, certainly here in the U.S., interval funds and BDCs and all the other 40-act funds. It's a requirement. And typically, if for the 40-act funds, as you all know, because you run a few of them, there's an independent board. Right, so you have a lot of eyes on on it, um, but I think as as investors who are in the asset class, or certainly there are more investors who are going to come into it over time, I would say just make sure that the this evaluation process it includes a third party and a reputable third party. And I would say most of the the credit managers I know that we deal with, and I'm sure that you know your counterparties and so forth are all you know thinking about this um, uh, responsibly because there is implications if you don't. Yeah, and it's you know I think. You know, like you said, credible managers, I think, generally have a really robust, thoughtful process based on fundamentals. And that's, you know, when you're in liquid markets, 
you know, even asking the question about private markets is sort of the presumption that liquid markets sort of get it right. But the reality is there's a lot of technical factors that have nothing to do, you know, that can cause a loan or a bond to move 10, 15 points over a period of time. Doesn't mean, you know, is that fair value? I guess there's a willing buyer and seller, but it may not reflect the underlying value of the actual instrument that you're trading. And, and you look at the guilt crisis. I mean, you had um, a lot of uh, UK uh, pension plans and others who were selling rated assets from double B up. Uh, at prices that were not reflective of the real value of the underlying instrument, but were reflective of how much liquidity was in the market at, at one point in time. And I think, listen, in, in the private markets, um, and I've said this a lot, it is both art and science in terms of valuation. It should be 90% science. And then there's certainly has got to be some factor and judgment in, you know, particularly if you have access and knowledge of something, whether it's good or bad or, or neutral. That has to be really put into the into the valuation process. That judgment, which effectively, if you think about an LP, when they sign a subscription document with you or any other manager, I mean, they're putting their trust in you that you have the judgment in order to make that valuation decision every quarter. Yeah, and it's a big fiduciary responsibility. Yeah, you mentioned what happened in the UK, and you know that rush for liquidity, right? Yes. So people selling what they can, so the market gets disjointed. So, you know, then turning to liquidity in private markets, you know, more and more open-ended structures and and maybe some, you know, questions around, uh, you know, a mismatch between the underlying assets and then the liquidity provided by the fund. A lot of them obviously have, you know, gating items. You can only redeem so much. But how do you think about open-ended, you know, versus closed-end structures in the asset class? And again, some things that people should be aware of as they're considering different options. Yeah, I, I would tell you it is, um, and we obviously we've done this with our partnership with you. We have made it an open-ended uh, structure for a number of reasons, but I, I would say the market is moving more and more toward open-ended, evergreen type of structures. There's a number of reasons for that. One is um, a typical closed-end private debt fund. You have a ramp-up period, you get to your top number, and then you come down pretty quickly. So unlike private equity, that drawdown is longer, that invested capital is there longer, and then and that drawdown is a lot longer period of time. What you find is you just keep on underwriting, you know, you know, fund two, fund three, fund four, fund five. You might as well just have said, okay, let's start when we invested in fund two. Why don't we have had it in evergreen? And if we like you, we'll just re-underwrite you effectively every year. Um, and we have the ability to redeem at some point in time. The word liquidity in interval funds, there is liquidity. Uh, certainly, if you're a, an investor in public BDCs, you're not investing in debt, you're investing in equity. I always like to make that point. But theoretically, you have some liquidity in the market um, at any one time. But as I think about the, the structures going forward, more and more investors, whether it's through SMAs or through evergreen structures that are out there now, the market is definitely moving in um, in that direction, which, by the way, gets back to the valuation point. You have to have a robust valuation process in order to both accept money over the course of a year and in whatever intervals you want, and also to be able to to redeem it. And, and investors really need to understand the, the the balance between the two. We typically prefer a lot of the liquidating share classes, right, because it gives managers the time to to have the assets naturally roll off. Some of the other structures where they're promising up to 5% liquidity, not an issue, but you know, when everybody rushes to the door, and we've seen that lately, I won't mention anybody's names, but yeah. as we've seen that lately, it definitely causes you know, concerns and pressures and people then wonder like, oh, I thought I could just get my money back. Well, on the retail side, that's definitely not the case. Um, so uh, you, have to, you have to look at your documents. 
So the next question I have is 20 years ago, maybe people had no exposure. Now people have 5 10%. Every sort of industry trend study you see expects to see that continue to grow, which is why so many managers are investing in building out capabilities. So, I mean, where do you see the limits for privates? I mean, people do need liquidity in the portfolio. Obviously, different investors have you know different needs for liquidity. But what limits do you see in terms of how much the markets can grow over time? If you just look at supply demand in the market, right, the supply of capital from banks continues to decrease. And they've been the biggest source of capital for companies and financial structures for many, many years. They're being replaced by insurance companies, pension plans, family offices, endowments, the whole gamut. And obviously now retail investors who are also coming into the asset class. Fundamentally, I think there is more demand for capital than there is supply. And I don't think that is just a here and now situation. I think that is a long trend that started in the early 90s and you know accelerated in the great financial crisis. And now as we go into this sort of interesting period, sort of post-COVID with inflation running uh, and and certainly regulators pulling back on the banks because they they want them healthy. They don't want to go through another crisis where the bank, banks are not healthy. Um, you're, you're seeing that, that, that demand for capital go into the private markets. So while there are more and more managers entering the marketplace, I mean, we've seen that and, and so forth, that's not a bad thing. I think they're there trying to fill the gap that is needed for in the marketplace by businesses to finance uh, credit makes everything go around uh, without credit you know the world doesn't function trade doesn't function so uh, we're seeing more and more of that and as the banks interestingly enough pull out of like some of the trade finance which they were stalwarts in for many years i mean you wanted to go for a bit to a bank to get some sort of trade finance or receivable financing you could go there they've really pulled back you know quite significantly so I know there are investors and allocators who think, wow, there's so many different managers out there. This has got to be a bubble and and so forth. And I think if you you go then look under the underlying portfolios, you look at the the covenants that these have. Most private debt is bilateral. There's covenants. um, There's good structures. There's the ability to repay the loan. If you think about all of that, because those managers are incented to make sure they get the money back because that's how they make money. I think it's a very different world than than the banks. So I think the asset class has a lot more room to grow. I mean, our our view is we think, you know, this is a three to five trillion dollar asset class in the next five to ten years. So you have a, a global perspective on the market. I'm just curious as you look at uh, you know North America, Europe versus versus Asia, the sort of state of maturity of those different markets, number of players. You know, I think North America's you know, probably pretty mature. Europe has developed a lot. I think, you know, in, in our business, at least, I think we see more growth in Asia Pac. So can you talk a little bit about the different geographies and what you see? I would concur with you on that. I mean, certainly the U.S. is a very, very well-developed market, um, very mature, and you continue to see new entrants come in uh, with more specialized strategies here in, in this market. So I always like to say, you know, if you look at private equity, when originally uh, in the private equity markets, you're a buyout fund. Well, today you're 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 a growth fund, you're a healthcare fund, you're an operational turnaround fund. So that specialization that happened in private equity over say 20 or 25 years has happened in private credit. Um, certainly in the US over the last, you know, sort of five to seven years, clearly. Um, and in Europe is is you know just a half step behind that. You see that specialization 
uh, developing. Um, certainly, if you're in the direct lending space, they're very, very well-established managers uh, in this space, w- which is what you would expect. As you go and you move toward uh, APAC, you know, you're, you're dealing with a number of different rules of law um, in terms of both creditor protection and debtor protections. Um, not every market is the same. And I think as you think about going into those markets, you have to think about, you know, what rule of law is there because being able to move on, if you, you're secured by assets and collateral, being able to actually go into court and get a judge to say, yeah, that's yours, take it, and then you can go do what you want with it is it is pretty important. Um, I'd say in, you know, the biggest part of APAC being Australia, um, that is definitely a, a developed market. Um, there's only so much there. Uh, you know, most of Australia is is inaccessible. Uh, really, it's only the coast cities. Uh, but certainly, it's a big enough market with, you know, mining and agriculture and, and, and things like that. Um, where there has been, a, I think, a, a very well-developed and even more developed, um, developing, I should say, uh, market for private debt. We see a lot of managers who are here in the U.S. who've also go, gone to, to Australia. And what I would also say is you think about it from an investor standpoint. So, let's, you know, we've been talking about investments themselves and managers, but from an investor standpoint, you're seeing uh, certainly Australia having really a lot of growth and for private debt, um, not only on the institutional side, but on the retail side. Uh, we're working with a group down there right now on the retail front, um, one of the first groups there to really look at that market, which is estimated a trillion dollars for high net worth money in Australia. I mean, it's a large market. So those are the kind of developments. So I think as, as APAC develops in terms of um, its structure and more managers are going into that space, you're going to see more allocators putting money into that region. I mean, currency does take, um, as you well know, uh, from from running this platform, currency is an important issue when you you allocate capital. And that's one of the things certainly APAC investors think about as well, too. Yeah, that's certainly an area we're focused on in our business. And I think that that local expertise, right? People talk about European private credit, but that, you know, if you do have an issue in your portfolio in the UK versus France versus Italy, it's, it's a very different process. And so having, you know, sort of on the ground, you know, boots on the ground, people that understand the geographies, the risks when you're, when you're negotiating a credit agreement, you know, depending on where the borrower is, the collateral is, it's all, you know, that, that that's a higher level of expertise you have to bring to the table. Uh, in those geographies. Yeah, I think it's a little easier in Europe. It's more focused and there's a a lot of similarities in terms of rule of law and obviously with the European Union uh, and so forth. I I think it helps. Um, In in APAC, broadly speaking, there's a lot more diversity and heterogeneous uh, types of structures out there. So it's a little harder to broad brush that than in, in Europe, to your point, where uh, you can move on the collateral, uh, even if you're in the UK and you have a German deal. Um, you you know what you're going to get when you go into a German court. And yeah. I think that rule of law and that comfort in that makes it a lot easier for the managers to do loans and, frankly, as an allocator, to give capital to that manager because they have that expertise. Yeah, and especially a lot of those sort of more emerging Asia, right, you may have the, the operations and assets may be in an emerging country. The sales may be all over the world, right? Because some Correct. of them are export-driven economies. So there's a lot of layers to think about as you as you go into those kind of spaces. Yeah, and we see trade finance is actually one of the areas in that area 
that that really is, there's a lot of demand for it uh, for that very reason because there's a lot of trading that's going on and being able to finance those things. You, know, you add on the whole supply chain logistics issues, which you know we've been dealing with over the last couple of years. You know, sort of during the pandemic. Um, you know, those if you have goods on a on a boat sitting out of uh, Los Angeles Harbor, somebody has to finance that, right? At some point in time. Yeah. So we've seen actually quite a bit of growth in that trade finance area, particularly in the APAC region. Yeah. So how do you see the interplay between as private credit grows, private credit managers and banks? Because you know there are now you know multi-billion dollar tranches that would have been historically the bread and butter of a, a you know in the broadly syndicated loan market, a big fee generator for banks, and you're seeing more and more of those get placed um, in the private markets. And so there's a you know a, a frenemy component. Yet yet you know the, a lot of the private credit managers depend on the banks for financing, and so you know there's a lot of connectivity, and there becomes competition over time. I think it's all relatively balanced and healthy, you know, now. But I do think you could continue to see um, pressure along that line. I would say it is healthy. Um, the banks certainly they have other ways to make money and with the restrictions and the higher capital ratios that have just been put onto them and really the fed and the comptroller asking them to pull back because of the money multiplier effect that lending has they're going to be a smaller and smaller part of the market over time uh, and i think they will have and i think they've always had a a really healthy relationship with the private credit market right because they're they provide subscription lines to those funds or they provide leverage to those funds or they might be providing some sort of banking service just to wire money back and forth between lps and gps so i think there's a lot of different ways for the banks to make money in the space um, but i do think um, as they continue to retreat if you will from underwriting those big transactions and then syndicating them out to a lot of private credit managers and so forth, you're seeing private credit managers step in to basically underwrite all of those those larger loans. There are some managers who are saying, hey, we're going to underwrite it and hold a billion dollars ourselves because we have a $20 billion fund. Um, and there are other managers who are saying, okay, we'll, we'll take it down and then we'll, we'll partner up either what our ILPs, we'll partner up with other managers, um, but we can speak for that check. So being able to write those big checks is becoming an important part of the marketplace. Uh, is it the only place you should be playing in private credit? No, I think that is one piece of it. There's a whole other universe of credit strategies and credit managers that, that you ought to look for, um, Diversity, you know, we, we haven't talked about it, but diversification and private credit is absolutely critical. Um, having limited exposure, uh, li limited counterparty exposure is important. Having that highly diversified. Uh, we've seen managers who have not had diversified portfolios in private credit. And if there's a hiccup, uh, my, one of my great sayings is you can't paper over the roadkill. And you can't in private credit. Private equity, you can lose money on one deal, and the other three, four, ten deals you have in the portfolio should make up for that. That doesn't happen in private credit. And I, I think anyone who's looking to get into the private credit business um, in terms of um, the LP side of the business or certainly looking at managers, that's the one thing they should be looking at is loss ratios for, the, for those managers. That really drives drives everything. Yeah. And I think, you know, whatever is to come from an economic cycle standpoint, right, you're going to see the, the quality of the underwriting that's happened over the last few years, right? Whose portfolios sort of withstand whatever economic volatility we have, because 
you said like you, you sort of you get your money back and you get your coupon. That's your upside, and your downside is you lose everything. And depending on how diverse the portfolio is, you can only have so many losses before you really destroy. You know what is the expected return for the portfolio? You know, as, as we wrap up here, David, I'd love to get you know sort of along the lines of the macro environment. You've been investing since the '90s, had a, a varied career, seen a lot of different cycles, a lot of different things. You know, you know, fads come and go. Um, what, what do you think about the world right now? I mean, we've had 2022 was a tough year. You know, bonds and and equities sort of you know both down. We come into January, it feels like everything's fine. The markets have all ripped higher, spreads are tighter, um, yet it doesn't feel like a lot has changed. So um, as you interact with your clients and talk about, you know, what's going on in the world, you know, where's your head? I know no one's got a crystal ball, so I'm not asking you to predict the future, but just what are some of the things that you're thinking about? You know, you have, to your point, you, there are so many different things going on in the market. Some of them are very connected and some of them very disconnected. So the China reopening has one effect. Uh, Europe really, I think, having uh, inflation still at very, very high levels. We saw something internally uh, yesterday in terms of some inflation levels um, in, in Europe um, and just sort of what's going on, you know, in, in the U.S. and all the geopolitical issues that are, that are going on um, and inflation and energy and, and so forth. It is a very interesting time. I'll, I'll say that. Uh, maybe it's the best word to use, the only word to use to try to invest. Uh, I think we are prepared for some choppiness ahead. I, I think being in credit, if you're not prepared for any choppiness, uh, you're not a creditor, you're an equity investor. Um, not that we want to be hopeful. Listen, we want to be hopeful and hopefully we have a a soft landing or you know just a touch and go if for those who, who who know about planes, which I think you do. Yeah. Uh, by the way, thanks for your service to our country uh, on that front. Um, but, you know, it's um, it's an interesting time. And I think we, one of the things that we have, we're saying to clients right now is you don't have to go too far out the spectrum to get paid for risk. Um, with senior secure direct lending deals, uh, you know, really in the 95 to 10% range, unlevered. Right, you get get ten percent. Let's put inflation aside. What we think the real inflation number is, and what will come down. But if you can do that in today's marketplace, I think that's not a bad place, um, you know, to be. And yes, there will be some volatility, and there will yes, there'll be uh, losses here and there. But you know, the beauty about private debt, everybody's always been waiting for the, that other shoe to drop. Oh, they're going to lose billions of dollars. All these private debt cats out there. Well, actually. You know, you look at you look at what happened during COVID, right? Where businesses stopped getting revenue, right? They were private equity owned. Private credit was a, a lender um, to those structures because of the bilateral relationship, right? It's not a Bloomberg screen. You can actually talk to a CEO, a CFO, the board, the private equity folks. There's a way to manage through that. So I, I think whatever volatility that we may or may not be in store for over the course of the next sort of year or two, I think the private credit market generally has the tools to manage through that period of of known unknowns, yeah. if, if you will. Well, and, and volatility is going to bring opportunity, right? And of course. I think, you know, good companies endure through any cycle, right? Good good asset classes, credit, right? It, Absolutely. You know, whether it's in the banking system or in private credit managers, credit is credit. And 
you know, lending money to good companies, it works through, through, you know, time tested through, through multiple cycles. That's right. So that's right. Well, I really appreciate you being here today. It was a great, great and insightful conversation and, and really thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to episode number three of season eight of Streaming Income and the first installment of our new Investing Together series. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.